Hello and welcome to Vibrant Lives Podcast, a podcast dedicated to your health and well-being, featuring interviews with experts about nutrition, physical health, mental health, and my five-minute food facts series, which are short episodes where I discuss nutrition-related topics. I'm Amanda Hayes, your host. I'm a lawyer turned nutritionist, and I'm on a quest to learn as much as I possibly can about living a healthy, active, and fulfilling life, which I would call a vibrant life, hence the name of my podcast, and sharing what I learn with you on this podcast. The health and nutrition space can be a confusing one, where misinformation and information mingle and untangling fact from fiction and identifying reliable, trustworthy sources of information is not always straightforward. My aim is to help you do that by speaking with knowledgeable guests who can explain their area of expertise in an accessible way and provide you with practical tips that you can use to improve your own well-being. Before I introduce today's guest, I'll quickly acknowledge that Any information or advice provided in Vibrant Lives podcast is not intended to be used to treat or prevent medical conditions, and it's never a substitute for advice from your own health professionals. Today I'm presenting you with what I think is a fascinating episode. My guest is Harry Glorickian, a Boston-based business expert, healthcare entrepreneur and author. Harry is a general partner at a venture capital firm, Scientia Ventures, that funds innovative tech companies operating in the healthcare space that use artificial intelligence and big data to make diagnostic devices. Harry's recently published a book called The Future of You, How Artificial Intelligence Can Help You Get Healthier, Stress Less and Live Longer. We'll be discussing those topics and the intersection between big data and artificial intelligence in healthcare including how the future of healthcare will look and how these technological advances may impact you. I learnt a lot from Harry's book and I'm really excited to share some of that knowledge with you today. Hi, Harry. Welcome to Vibrant Lives Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. It's such a pleasure. And Harry, I'd like to start the podcast with some quick fire questions to get to know a little bit about you outside your work as a health technology expert. So Harry, where did you grow up? So I grew up in San Francisco uh, for about half my life. So I was maybe 27. And then Mm -hmm. the rest of my life, I've been here in the Boston area. Right. So you've moved across the country. (laughs) across the country to two extremely beautiful places, but yes, across the country. Yeah, I do love San Francisco. I've not been to Boston. I will one day, one day. And Harry, your favorite form of exercise? Um, You know, weightlifting is probably my favorite. Mm -hmm. Um, Although I I realize like I need to get in a good, you know, aerobic exercise, like a run, like I did today, but generally it's it's weightlifting. Yeah, great. Your go-to meal for dinner? You know, I was asking, I said to my wife and my son, I'm like, what is my go-to meal? When I... <laughs> and they were like looking at me puzzled because j- I'll eat like just about anything. But I would say it has to be some sort of, you know, protein and and vegetable for the most part. Um, so chicken yeah. or or beef of some sort and then some sort of vegetable if I can work it in there. Yeah, perfect. And what are you enjoying listening to at the moment? It could be audiobook, music, anything, podcast. 
you know, I, I, every day I will ask Siri to play me something different. So it could be top pop, Latin, 70s, 80s, 90s, yeah. right? I try to mix it up um, so that I'm not always listening to the same stuff. And then actually it really helps with my, my kids are, are yeah. sort of multi-generational music. Um, the other thing that I'll do is I will save all the articles and papers that I'm interested in reading mm-hmm. to a app called Pocket. And then when I go for a walk, the app will read me the paper. Oh, fantastic. So does that, do you um, set parameters and it chooses the things that you're interested in? Um, I, I, you flip up, a, you, you sort of flip it into the, your, the article that you're interested okay. in the pocket and it holds those articles and then you click read and then it starts reading the articles one by one. Oh, that sounds fantastic. My husband would love that. And Harry, your favourite holiday destination? Easy, Barbados. Oh, wow. Yes, never been there either, but that <laughs> it does look amazing. <laughs> so, Harry, you clearly enjoy being involved with technology and innovation in the health space. Uh, you worked in biotechnology, which is combining big data and biology and you were at Applied Biosystems during the time that the human genome was sequenced. So currently you're a partner in a VC firm called Scientia Ventures, where you fund tech companies with specific goals. So can you tell us in broad terms, what kind of things are you looking to fund at Scientia Ventures? So we generally invest in early to mid-stage companies at the intersection of data and biology. You know, for examples, it would be companies that target, say, computational biology or chemistry or mm-hmm. the digitization of medicine or a new area that's called digital therapeutics. Um, but they, but we all try to look at something that's going to be a breakthrough at the cutting edge yeah. of, of life science and healthcare. That sounds so interesting. And throughout this podcast, we'll be talking about what some of those cutting edge and breakthrough things are. Um, and recently, you've you've written a book, and it's called The Future You, How Artificial Intelligence Can Help You Get Healthier, Stress Less, and Live Longer. So who wouldn't want to know about that? <laughs> and I have to admit, Harry, when your book was sent to me, I was a little hesitant to read it, not because I didn't think it would be interesting, but because Technology and I are not always great friends, and I thought, oh, I just don't know if I'm going to understand this book. But clearly, you wrote it with people like me in mind because you gave some really clear explanations. And in the end, I loved reading it, and it was really interesting. So I thought a good place to start for our listeners who some may be like me and not know a lot about technology or AI. So let's start at the, at the, with the basics and can you explain to us in sort of lay terms, what is meant by AI or artificial intelligence? So, I mean, there's probably as many definitions of AI now that are, you know, as there are scientists working on it. But in general, it's a variety of techniques. So it's not one thing. It's sort mm-hmm. of think of it like you're carrying around a toolbox. Yep. Um for getting computers to process in, process information similarly to the way a human might, right? So depending on, do I need a screwdriver for this particular mm-hmm. application? Do I need a wrench, right? So there are different tools in the toolbox that would um, be used depending on what I'm trying to do. So some common examples, right? Um, personalized shopping, all these mm-hmm. AI-powered assistants, Siri, um, 
you know, I forget what Amazon's thing, Alexa, um, you know, these sorts of things. Yeah. Fraud prevention, like when your credit card says, did you ah. make that purchase, right? So there's a system out there looking at patterns and it notices something out of the ordinary and says, uh, no, that doesn't look right. Um, you know, voice assistance. Yeah. Um, personalized learning, uh, autonomous cars, right? Those are all using different forms of artificial intelligence that Google searches. I mean, people are using it every day and it's in the background. They just don't know know. it's there. Yeah, yeah. I think the thing that stood out to me about it is in, in sort of very basic terms is that the computer is teaching itself its learning. Is that right? Uh, or not really. <laughs> again, I think it, de- I, it depends on what the application is, right? So, mm-hmm. so in, let's say in some sort of medical thing, uh, you know, you want it already taught. <laughs> oh, of course. You don't want it, right? <laughs> Making uh, it up. <laughs> but, um, but in other situations, it may be pulling in more data and sort of modifying itself as it goes. Yes. Um, okay. But, but in general, there's a, a lot of things where it's pre-trained mm-hmm. when it gets there. So that it, you know, it functions significantly, sure. you know, appropriate when it's being used at that time. Yeah, that that's a much better explanation than mine. Um, and now I have to ask a silly question because the whole time I was reading this book, I was wondering, how, where does all the data come from that's used in the AI algorithms and how does it get collected? <clears throat> so I guess... The answer to that would, again, it depends on the application. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if it's an exercise app and sleep app, right, it's getting a lot of data from you and all the other people that are using it. And then it learns your pattern along with everybody else. Um, And and that's where it gets a lot of its data from, right? And, And then it's sort of parroting that data back to you based on, you know, how they've set up their, their application. Mm-hmm. If it's something like radiology, where you're looking at an x-ray or a CT or something, that system has to be trained on images that are labeled. So the system can learn like, right. this is a tumor. This is a break in the, you know, in a bone. This is a, a bleed in the brain, right? Mm-hmm. It's got to be trained so that when it sees it, it can then highlight it to the physician. Right. So all the um, CT data, is that collected from hospitals across the US or? Uh, There are companies, well, there are companies out there that sort of have repositories of these um, because you don't want just the data, but you want what's called labeled data Mm -hmm. or, you know, data that says, you know, when you see this, this means this. Right. And this means that, right? Right. so that the system can be able to distinguish that based on how a human has categorized it or diagnosed it. Okay. Oh, that's so interesting Um, because when I think of data collection, I think back to my very early days in a law firm where we had to go through every single document in this big um, dispute we were working on and, and label it manually and then I think it was put into a system, but we had to tell the system what it was, what kind of document it was. Uh, you know, that is one of the biggest impediments uh, sometimes in the space is, you know, do you have the right data and is it labeled yeah. correctly? Um, because, you know, it's garbage in, 
garbage out, right? Absolutely. So the better the data that goes into the training set, mm-hmm. you know, the more optimal, hopefully, the outcome of what you're trying to do is. Yeah. So we so humans are not redundant yet, is what I'm hearing. We we still have to feed in the right data. We're there are certain things where you know it's you know it's funny because people always talk about AI and they they expect something like commander data on Star Trek or something yeah. you know something like that, right? And what I say to them is, you know, it really only needs to do this very narrow thing really well. And by the way, it doesn't get tired. It does it over and over again. It's, yeah. you know, it can be incredibly accurate and incredibly fast. Those are things that we do every day. So it, it is getting better at better at doing certain things. Now, what we've noticed in healthcare is an AI system plus a human mm. make a better, there's a better outcome than one or the other by themselves. Yes. Um, but in certain situations, these things are getting incredibly good. Yeah, and you do explain that in your book. And one of the reasons is that an AI system can look at so much more data than a human can. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like you can, it can look at every skin lesion <laughs> yeah. ever, mm. um, which is not possible by, you know, a human being, right? Um, but you still need a doctor to sort of, put that last blessing on it to be like, yes, absolutely, this is what we're going to do. Yeah, and explain it, obviously, to the patient. Talking about healthcare, certainly the area that you work in, and it seems like there's a really good synergy between AI and healthcare, and they they complement each other really well. So, So why is that? So AI is playing sort of a more prominent role in in medicine and healthcare because of the advances of computing power, these learning algorithms. And then we're really starting to, you know, we have large data sets sourced from medical records Mm -hmm. and wearable health monitors. I mean, if you go back not that far, you know, when you walked into the doctor's office, it was, uh, you know, file cabinets full of file folders, right? We're beyond that now, right? Now everything is in in the computer. The minute it's in the computer and you have it digitized, now you can suck it up and, you know, feed it to one of these systems that then can use it, you know, to do whatever it is that it's going to do. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It just reminds me, my father was a doctor. And when I was a young girl in the holidays, we'd go down to his offices or his rooms. And one of the jobs we would, uh, my sister and I would do it, we would go through the huge rooms full of violent files of patients and anything older than, I think they were legally obliged to keep things for seven years and anything right. older than seven years we could we could get rid of. And it was just one of those jobs that no one wanted to do. So <laughs> my sister and I got paid a meager fee <laughs> to wade through all those files. But obviously um, doing it electronically is so much more efficient. Um, yeah, I mean, and once it's electronic, you really – in some ways, you, you may not want to ever get rid of it. Yeah, you probably don't need to because there seems to be sort of an unlimited storage, whereas with physical files, you know, you had to make way for new new files all the time. Right. In the health space, you say that um, AI is going to utterly transform the healthcare system as we know it today. And in fact, you even go so far as to say that it's the fourth industrial revolution. 
So let's look at some specific examples of how the healthcare system will be transformed. I thought we could start with one that that everyone understands, and that's the use of smartphones. So in the US, the wellness industry is absolutely enormous. I I read somewhere it's worth, um, or maybe in your book, in fact, $4 trillion. (laughs) And so many of us are familiar with apps you've already mentioned, like things that track our sleep or track our exercise. So what are some of the examples of things that might lie ahead in this space with the use of our smartphones and AI and health? There are so many new areas that are emerging. I mean, but and and some that people may not even know, uh, you know, exist. Like, you know, I'm, there's a, a little device, you know, I'm holding that uh, it's called Cardia, right. and it's you know as about as thin as a credit card, yeah, uh, thinner, uh, yeah, about as thin as a credit card, smaller, and you put two fingers on each electrode, mm-hmm. and it will do an ECG of your heart, and it'll look at six different parameters of your heart. That's right? amazing. I used to have to go to my physician, yeah. get hooked up with all these mm. wires. You know, of course, when they pull off the electrodes, half the hair on my chest would <laughs> like to get pulled off too. Um, and, and now I can just do this and put it here. And then if I want to ship the results to my doctor, I can. If I want, I can have the AI system look at it and see if it sees anything abnormal. That's right? amazing. But there are all these technologies mm. like, you know, another one is, you know, my blood pressure cuff. Oh, yes. Which mm. is, you know, maybe 10 years ago, if you really wanted to do this, right, you'd have to go to somebody that really knew how to use a blood yeah. pressure cuff and read it. I mean, I just push a button and it just does it. That's amazing. Do you do that every day? Uh, I do it probably once a week yeah, just to see how things are going. Mm. Um, inevitably I might have to have it do it two or three times because I'm like, all right, you need to calm down when you're doing this (laughs) because the numbers are going to be too high. That's Um, right. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) But uh, there are so many of these new technologies that are coming up. Um, it could be, you know, companies that are looking at your genome and say tailoring diets more Mm. towards that, or the microbiome is, is a big area that's growing over time of, you know, you know, were you on antibiotics a lot? It could have like disrupted your microbiome. Mm. And so getting it back to health is sort of difficult, but you know, there are companies that are trying to do these sorts of things and use these technologies because there's so much data Yes, that a human being trying to make sense of all this is, I mean, at some point you're like, I, I can't do this. Yeah. The computer can look at more parameters than you and I can. And the other thing is that the computer's not biased. A human, uh, or is that not? That's, <laughs> have I opened a can of worms? No, no, no. It's, it's. You know, I want to say yes, it's not, but that would not. That would be like a, you know, a, a false. That is somewhat a false statement today I because see. some of these systems, depending on how they're trained can have bias because of of the data set that they used. That makes sense. Um, You know, what if I only trained it on males and not females? Mm. Right. So then, you know, know, that's just an uh, an example. So, but what we're learning is that if you're going to get these technologies approved through some sort of regulatory body, Mm -hmm. 
And they're going to scrutinize the data. They're going to see what the outcome is and so on and so forth. You want that for some of these products so that it's held to the highest standard so that when it, it comes out, um, like I was, I, I interviewed somebody on my podcast yesterday for a video game that is FDA approved, uh, that is prescribed for children that have ADHD. All right. So instead of taking a drug Mm -hmm. and having a side effect, they would play a video game and you would get an equivalent outcome of them taking a drug and they would be able to focus more when they're at school or whatever. But that had to be held up to, you know, a very high standard like a drug would so that, you know, you get the outcome you want and it doesn't do something that you don't want. Yeah, that, that's really amazing. I, I mean, what a, an excellent example of the application of AI, I think. Oh, yeah, there's there's some fascinating ones. Sometimes I talk to people out there and I'm like, oh, my God, I really need to read more. And I, and I read a lot. So yeah, yeah. there's a lot of really good stuff happening out there. One of the examples in your book that I really loved was the smart bed. Can you tell us about what a smart bed would do? Oh yeah, my that that's my bed. Um, you know, my wife every once in a while might say it's a dumb bed because she doesn't <laughs> she doesn't interact with it the way that it wants it to interact with. But um, but but it's uh, well, my bed is it's an it's a company called Eight Sleep, so the number eight. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it does is it adjusts the temperature based on uh, my uh, level of sleep. So light sleep versus deep sleep versus in the morning. And it adjusts it according to the temperature that's in the room and outside. So in the winter time, it's wonderful because I get into it. It's nice and warm. Oh, lovely. So you can fall asleep very quickly. And then as I go into deep sleep, it cools itself off because the cooler bed keeps you in deep sleep longer. Whereas in the morning, it it warms up. Now in the summertime, it will cool off. And so I don't have to use the air conditioner as much. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not tossing and turning because I'm hot. It keeps me cooler. So I sleep better. Yeah, that, that, that's incredible. I mean, there's so much that can be done in this space, isn't there? And one thing I wondered with this kind of technology is, is it going to exacerbate any inequalities in healthcare? I mean, is this kind of technology expensive? Is it the kind of thing that the worried well will invest in as opposed to people who might need it? What's your thought on that? So if we look at technology as a category and say, where has it gone from Mm. a price point? uh, What you've seen over time is the impact of technology is actually deflationary. You get more from that technology every year for the same price or less. Um, and so, you know, do you carry around a, a scanner or a, or a camera or, you know, there's a million things that are in your phone now Yeah. Mm. and it's a multifunctional device, right? Depending on the app. Um, and what I'm seeing is technologies that would have been like this ECG I was holding up. This is $80. Wow. That's incredible. Is that available on the market now? Or have yeah, you just got a $80. It's, it, 
No, 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 no. This has been available for quite some time. Uh Um, So, you know, that's $80. I think the least expensive Fitbit these days might be $60 or $80. I mean, you do see that, Mm -hmm. you know, it's coming down. I remember the first time I bought a wireless scale, it was probably closer to $200. I think you can buy a wireless scale now if you go to the local drugstore for, for like, $30, $40. So, you know, these things are becoming, they're coming down and they're becoming very accessible. Yeah. Um, One of the points you make is it's democratizing medicine. Oh yeah. I mean, where Mm. many of these devices, I would have absolutely had to go into a hospital before. There's no other choice. They're at home now. Hmm. And in fact, that leads me very well to my next question. There's a great um, example in your book about decentralized healthcare. And you give an example where the kids are playing soccer, one collides with another and falls over and he hurts his arm. So in that situation, a parent would think, oh, is my kid's arm broken? He's in, he's in pain. Let's take him to the ER where you might sit for hours to get an x-ray and see a doctor so can you paint for us a picture of an alternative health um, outcome in that or health treatment protocol, sorry, in that situation? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I think, you know, I, and I can speak to sort of what's happening around here mm. around me is clinics are like a CVS or a Walgreens or, a you know, um, a Walmart will have clinics in-house where you can go and start to take care of these sorts of things much faster than you would say having to go to a, an emergency room. Yeah. Now, one of the other things that, you know, that's happening is um, portable devices to sort of let you manage or take control of that health condition are becoming more readily available. Um, you know, portable x-ray machines are becoming <clears throat> more of a reality. There's actually a CT, portable CT scan that will hook up to your phone wow! and it will let you, the, the AI system will say, move a little down, move a little to the left, move up, move, move to the right. And when you're done, that image will be equivalent to a trained professional. That's amazing. Oh my goodness. Right. So these technologies are making it, much more accessible mm. to not necessarily have to go into the ivory tower for that particular service. Or in reality, I think it's going to bring the ivory tower out more into the community, making yeah. it more accessible for people to, um, you know, make that decision or, or help you make that decision. I mean, there are systems now where if you had a lesion on your arm, you take a photo of it in the app and it will tell you dermatologically, like what are the percentages of that mole being a problem? Mm. And then you can make your appointment online. Right. And then, and so the whole process just gets yeah. moved along much easier and much more smoother than what we have today. Yeah. Um, it's a lot more efficient from the sounds of it. So with the the boy who's gone to Walmart or wherever to have his portable x-ray, and it turns out, oh, it's not broken. Um, That means then that that's one less 
person going into the ER department? Oh, absolutely. I know that during COVID, we were having unbelievable problems here. Uh, I think that some of that may have been alleviated at this time, Mm. but technology is changing the business model. Before you had no choice but to go to this location because all the technology and knowledge was there. Yeah. Now that that technology is sort of becoming more readily available, um, you can do that at a clinic. You can do some of it at home. You can do monitoring at home now with telehealth. It's changing the dynamics of the model as it exists. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? I mean, it takes the pressure off the hospital system and it also empowers the patient as well to to make their own informed decisions. One of the um, really interesting things about AI is AI in terms of its interaction with the human genome. And an example of genetics and cancer treatment that we most people have heard of is um, the test for the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes that are linked to breast cancer. In your book, you talk about cancer tumours can have their own genetic testing. And so I was wondering if you could explain how this works and how this knowledge can assist us with cancer treatment. Think of it like Google Maps. Mm-hmm. To put it into the simplest right terms is, if you... If you know your destination, right, this gives you a map to sort of get there more, much more efficiently. The existing process of some of the treatments is trial and error for, you know, to, to put it into the simplest terms. I mean, there's, we could go into in detail on this, but if I sequence the tumor, there may be personality traits genomic signatures that are then susceptible to certain therapies that would actually work on that tumor mm-hmm. right better than we're going to give you this one this drug first if that doesn't work we're going to give you this drug if that you know we're going to move down the line right by the time you're at the third or fourth line of treatment you're not happy you're not a you're not a yeah. happy camper and right? you've wasted whereas time. if i was able to find a you know, something that I can send a targeted missile towards, my chances of affecting that tumor significantly grow, right? And so the example that I might give you was, I remember, you know, lung cancer, and you would be like, ah, you know, not a good, not not good if you know somebody that has lung cancer. And then the first targeted drug came up. Now the second, and now if I don't use like if I don't look up things on my computer, there's just so many different therapies now available uh, that if you're lucky enough to have one of the ones that, and they catch it early and and you, you know, you can treat it with one of these lung cancer could be like, yeah, okay. But but I, I survived. Yeah. Amazing. Um, So I always tell people when, when they have, you know, some form of cancer, I beg them go have it sequenced, Mm. right? Go have it sequenced. Even if your doctor like pushes back, just go have it sequenced. I mean, if there, if there is no drug, at least, you know, there isn't a drug, but if there is, there's a higher probability of that working. 
Yeah, because with cancer, the earlier you start the treatment, the better the outcome. So that cuts out, as you say, some of the trial and error of testing which drug may be the most effective. Yep, and the da- the data is just too compelling not to you know, follow that paradigm. Yeah. And we're getting better and better at it every day. I mean, it's not perfect, but oh my God, compared to five years ago, we are yeah. orders of magnitude better at it than we were back then. And now we're able to sequence somebody as we did with COVID. I mean, I think there was an article written out of Stanford where they sequenced a, a child in like four hours. That is extraordinary. And how long did it take to sequence the human genome originally? Oh, long time. Yeah. It, was, <laughs> years. it was years, wasn't it? And now it you're saying years. four hours. It was years. So do you think sequencing a cancer tumour will be in, in the future standard protocol for treatment? Yeah, in my personal opinion, it should be standard protocol now. Yeah. Um, although I would, I think there would be some physicians out there that would want to like, you know, lynch me by saying that, but I think it should be standard protocol now. Um, I think the cost they're shooting for a cost down to $60. Goodness me. And if you think of it, that ultimately would save a lot of money because you'd have, you'd go straight correct. to the correct treatment um, you wouldn't be wasting time with other drugs and appointments you don't need in between. Mm. Correct. But yeah. you can see how IT has to play a role here, right? So you sequence, there's a lot of information that's got to be processed. Yeah. Then you've got to say, okay, here's the right drug that it aligns with, right? Mm. I mean, all of this has got to be looked over by the physician and then you've got to give it to someone. But that's still, that's what I would consider truly modern medicine rather than, yeah, we're going to start you off on this first because that's my experience. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that that is so interesting. And that's where I said earlier that a computer's not biased, which of course <laughs> was not entirely correct. But in this case, what your rule, what you're taking out of the equation is the physician's personal experience. Like they may not have been exposed to certain drugs, but you know, this time, if you're using AI, it's pinpointing, it's using all the information out there to pinpoint the best, the best um, treatment protocol. That's how I understand it. I mean, I still want the physician, like an experienced oncologist involved. Um, But I also have seen situations where, you know, the data said, give somebody this drug, it seems to be working fine. And then they switch medications and things don't go so high. Mm. So, you know, it's really hard. Like when I'm running businesses, if I don't look at the, you know, the PL, right? The profit and loss. And if I'm not looking at that data, I'm going to make the wrong decision. So the data helps drive like what I need to do next. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So it's a tool. Yeah. No, no. It's uh, it's one of those situations where I think the data needs to drive things as well as the physician's experience, but mm. they can't see the molecular level of what's happening in that tumor. So earlier you mentioned COVID-19 and 
I think that was a that's a really good way of illustrating the positive application of AI. So from reading your book, it's very clear that AI played a critical role in helping researchers understand the new virus. So the genome was sequenced in a matter of days, as opposed to the years it took to first sequence the human genome. And this led to the sequence of the virus enabled a test to develop, sorry, it enabled scientists to develop a test that would detect the virus. It helped scientists discover the drug molecules that could potentially kill the virus. I think one of them is remdesivir. And it also played a critical role in manufacturing vaccines. That was really interesting for me to read. And it's important to understand because for the public or the layperson, it seemed like the vaccines were developed really quickly. And that led to a little bit of fear in the community because people thought, oh, perhaps that corners had been cut. But that's not actually true when you understand the role that AI played in developing the vaccine. So could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So when you think about, well, when we did something like, if you remember SARS, Mm -hmm. when we sequenced SARS, it took us about three months. Once we had gotten to COVID, we sequenced that in about 48 hours. Wow. All right. Um, And then because of the RNA vaccines and RNA itself, right, the way that we um, put it to work is it's very programmable. And so we had the first vaccines to try within 48 hours after that. So you're talking about in four days, we went from sequence to potential drug or potential therapy, right? And so technology has moved forward, right? Whereas people historically are looking at history. The other thing that uh, the governments did, which was huge, is normally what you do is you prove the drug works and then you start manufacturing it, Mm -hmm. right? And those caused delays. Yeah, of course. What happened was they were taking up a, a educated guess saying, this looks like it's going to work based on the data. Let's manufacture while we're testing. That is and they just took a gamble, yeah. right? Because if they were wrong, you've got to throw all that stuff out. Yeah. Right. So, but they were right. You know, thank God for, you know, for everybody. But mm. it all those things moved took a process that would take years because everything is done one after the other. And what we did is we stacked things that we could stack. And so all of a sudden it all finished in about nine months. Yeah, that is extraordinary, isn't it? And so the use of AI or, or data really helped in this situation. It cut out months or years of trial and error, which may have been used in developing previous vaccines. Oh, yes, yes. And and the technology that they used being the mRNA also lent itself mm. to this ability to be produced very quickly, right? Yeah. And, and make changes in it very quickly. So it was a combination of all of these that came together that that let us get there. But you can you can just see, like if we actually had sequencing systems set up to do surveillance around the world, 
you'd start to see this stuff much sooner, much faster, right? Where we can get ahead of the next pandemic as yeah. opposed to be behind it. Mm. So that that's actually my next question. Do you think that ultimately with the use of AI, we can prevent future pandemics? Uh, well, we, I don't think we can stop them from emerging, mm. but we can uh, get ahead of them or, you know, be able to respond in real time yeah. to what's happening. Um, this whole concept of don't test, like I'm like, wait, <laughs> how can you, if you don't test, you don't know where the fire is. If you don't know where the fire is, you don't know where to send the fire trucks, right? You, you, you need to understand what's going on in these surveillance systems. Think of it like radar, right? It's letting you know when something is on its way and you can prep for it. Yep. If you don't prep for it, you're, then you're going to take the worst of it. There's still a human element in that, though, in that to predict or see what's coming in the future in terms of potential pandemics, there does need to be collaboration and data sharing between governments and, and that kind of thing. Is that a fair comment, do you think? Yes. Uh, and as a matter mm. of fact, what I can say is during the pandemic, the amount of data that was being shared was unprecedented. Yeah, amazing. Um, people were sharing data in real time because it was as if we were all fighting the war in real time. Mm, mm. Well, that's a positive development given what's happening in the world at the moment. Um, to <laughs> You know, humans can actually collaborate <laughs> when we need to. Yes. No, I think, you know, from what I saw on, you know, with testing drugs, clinical trials, trying to get information out. How do you manage patients? How do we make those changes? That was literally people were sharing information as easily and as quickly as they could mm. because we were fighting something that we didn't know how to deal with. Yeah. It was a united effort in that sense. Yes. Yeah. I think it's important, Harry, to, to address some concerns about AI that people may have. In the book, you say that AI can question what it means to be human. So from a philosophical stance, the combination of AI, technology, engineering, and the human body can blur the lines that define human versus machine. And you say, I mean, from your perspective, I understand it's an exciting question, but for some people it might sound disconcerting or even a bit terrifying. So in terms of the philosophical issues, what are the kind of questions that we need to be asking ourselves? I mean, techno you know, the way that I look at the implementation of AI, and I, I always try to stay on the positive side of it because, <laughs> there, you know, you can go down the dark uh, hole. Sure. But um, it really is sort of, I think, for healthcare, it's democratizing care. Mm -hmm. um, it's raising the the standard of care that someone can get. Um, you can imagine if something has seen every image, right? It, you're not gonna get better than, than that yeah. plus the physician, right? Um, or making the technology portable so everybody in a rural area can get access to top of the line capabilities. Um, I look at that as like a huge bonus. 
these yeah. wearables, which, you know, uh, on is my, on my hands ring? or whatever that you're looking at, it's an aura ring, it's an Apple yeah. watch. And it's a, this one is a whoop band. I have a whoop as well. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> right. And these are early warning or dashboards for yourself. And so I'm constantly learning about things about myself as I Mm -hmm. get older and learning how to course correct to keep myself in the best shape that I can. And so it's not just a health and wellness, but the data actually influences how I do my own AB testing and optimize, you know, for the best outcome. Yeah. Um, And so I'm hoping what that means is I'm just either not going to get sick or I'm going to push that off for as long as possible. Um, And if you look at it that way, that means I'm not taxing the system. Yeah. Um, I'm living a full and healthy, happy life because if I'm healthy, theoretically, I should be happy. Um, And then I optimize like when I want, when I work, I'm, I'm sort of, at my optimal level to, to, you know, function uh, that way. And I think everybody wants to be healthy, happy, you know, productive. Um, That's where I see the benefits of these technologies, at least in the world of healthcare. Um, There's, you know, there's a lot of dubious, um, you know, I can't say that I'm a huge fan of someone, something like Facebook or these sorts of things I have, you know, there's, Mm. People don't understand like how dangerous those things can be. Um, But in the world of healthcare, I think good will outweigh the bad uh, in many areas in people's daily lives. Yes. I want to throw in a bit of a thorny question, an ethical question uh, surrounding genetics. So if a parent can edit genes for a rare disease in their unborn child, most people would say that's that's a good outcome. But that also means they could potentially edit other genes, for example, eye color, for creative talent, and and produce in quotes a designer baby. So where do we draw the line with this kind of thing? Well, you know, there are guidelines that are being putting out saying you know you shouldn't do certain things, etc. Right, but in reality. some of these rare diseases we're talking about, it's like a single change that we're making. And so that single changes, we can, we can make those happen. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about intelligence or one of these other things, it's such a complicated set of switches and buttons. And, you know, that it's not just one gene. It's not just one gene. Right. So I don't think anybody really, that that is at least I can't see it being in the realm of reality at the okay. moment. Um, but I always tell policymakers, you have to be ahead of the curve on this, not behind the curve. Sure. Being behind the curve on this is Pandora's box and you mm. never close it. Uh, you have to be ahead of artificial intelligence and gene editing and these sorts of things. Can 
people, or I don't even know the right words to ask the question, but can you select the sex of your unborn child? Oh, you can you can do that now. You don't need gene editing. There's Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> that shows my lack of understanding. But what about that? I mean, surely, I don't know, that just seems kind of a bit wrong to me. I don't even know why, but it feels wrong. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, unfortunately, if you look through time, um, you know, different cultures, different populations have been doing it. Yeah. For many, many years. Um, I suppose you know, it's better they either to do, do it, it the old-fashioned way, mm, right, uh, mm. <laughs> or or the more modern way. But like you know, it's it's not it's this has been an age-old. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm. Of course, it, it leads to imbalances in society where you have an excess of one sex over the other and then there's a problem. But anyway, we don't need to go down that rabbit hole right now. What about another concern that people may have is what about data privacy, data security, the potential disaster of hacking these systems? So how should risk like this be managed and, managed and who should take that on? So, you know, they, people should, you know, have a healthy level of concern. I mean, you should be as concerned about this data as you are your financial data. Mm-hmm. Um, and your expectation should be that the, you know, institutions or companies that are working on this will be held to the same level of security as your dollars and cents. Yes. Um, <clears throat> biological data or health data is becoming just as important as your financial data. Uh, so you want it to be safe, but I am seeing the companies come up that are coming up with tools and technologies to ensure safety, encryption technology, and so forth. Right. So I feel good about where it's going. I, you know, That's it's good. just we all want it to get there tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so uh, I do believe people should be concerned, mm-hmm. um, but I will tell you, compared to what people share on Facebook, um, <laughs> I would be even more concerned about what people do there and they're just sort of not paying attention to what they're doing. We're just voluntarily giving up so much personal information without paying a lot of attention to it. So I think that's something that people need to be more aware of in general. Mm. Definitely. And, And that's probably an example of where the regulation has not been ahead of the curve. It's almost like, we're scrambling to catch up now that we understand what's going on. Yes. You don't want to be yeah. behind the curve on this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. You don't. Um, well, it sounds from speaking to you that we're in, we're in good hands. So that's, that's I, I hope so. I hope so. Hear. So I'm very curious for someone who knows so much about healthcare and its future promise and its potential limitations what particular steps do you take, Harry, to look after your own health? I, I'm always testing all these new devices, um, you know, talk, <clears throat> talking to my doctor about, you know, the implications of the results, um, learning from the data and trying to adjust my behavior. You know, I don't want to restrict myself. I mean, if I want to have that glass of wine at 10 o'clock, yeah. I'll have it. But I will have it knowing that it's going to wipe out my deep sleep. Mm, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And, 
you know, there are times where I'm like, oh no, I got something to do tomorrow. I cannot afford that wipeout of deep sleep because the, I know the data will support my decision. And so I just won't have the glass of wine, right? Or I won't have the meal late. Um, mm. But it's an, it, well, all it does is it, now I can make an informed decision as opposed to whatever happens, happens. Yes. I think uh, my whoop band, which is something you're wearing as well, the, the main impact that's had for me is on my sleep because it's confirmed what I already suspected. For example, you drink wine, you don't sleep as well. You, you sort of know that. But when you actually see it reflected back to you in the data, it's really, it's really interesting and it does give you pause. Like you think, okay, as you mentioned, maybe I won't drink that glass of wine tonight because tomorrow I'm going for a long run or, or whatever it might be. So I've, I, I love uh, looking at all that data. I find it so fascinating. Yeah, and the beauty of AI is it's supposed to make it easy for someone mm. to put that information to work for themselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's amazing technology, isn't it? I mean, in the past, uh, you know, to measure your heart rate, you needed to wear a cumbersome strap around your chest that was really uncomfortable, and now you just have something sitting on your wrist. It's incredible. Yes. So in the book, you pose the question, if a computer algorithm could predict that you were going to die or from what would you want to know? And assuming there's no accident that intervenes, would you want to know? Yeah, I mean, you know, look, I've got two boys and, you know, I just want to like, if I could prepare, I want to prepare mm. um, in some way uh, to make sure that I'm leaving everything <laughs> so that, you know, they're okay. They, you know, them and mm. my wife are okay. I'm sure that if I ever did know, it's going to freak me out for a while, but I'm, yeah. you know, it is, you, you've just got to, I mean, information is, is, is knowledge and knowledge is power. Yes. So mm. some people want to know, and then some people absolutely don't want to know. So it's I mean, your preference. Don't want to know. Don't want to know camp for sure. <laughs> I think if I knew it would play on my mind so much that I wouldn't relax and enjoy the moment, I'd feel like every moment was high pressure. So I definitely wouldn't want to know. But even if you can predict it, you still don't really know because AI could never predict whether you, you know, step in front of a, a bus and get knocked over and... No, but it's getting really good at saying who in the critical care department is migrating towards crashing. Right. See, that's a very helpful use of AI, isn't it? Because then the resources can be directed at the right moment to the right person. Yep. So, Harry, the final question I like to ask all my guests is if you could recommend two things that people could do to improve their well-being, and it could be anything at all, what would they be? So a wireless scale, because we know that weight plays a huge role in many different health conditions. Mm. And you can see the line going up or down. It's, it's yeah. pretty straightforward. Maybe a blood pressure cuff, right? Because you can't see that. And if you're not measuring yeah. it every once in a while, you just it can sneak up on you and wreak havoc on your life. Mm. Mm. Um, 
if I threw in a third, I would say some sort of, you know, exercise monitor that can look yeah. at your heart and your sleep and these other categories. But I always tell people like pick one and incorporate it into your life. Yeah. Get used to it. And then if you want to add more, add more after that. Yeah. Of all the wearables you've got, you're wearing three things I think can see at the moment. What's your favorite? Probably my Apple watch. And mm -hmm. then my yeah. whoop band, my whoop band is more like a coach. And then my Apple Watch acts like a aggregator of all the, you know, the data that comes into my phone. Yeah, yeah. Do you spend much time looking at it? My watch, no. The phone, yes. Um, yeah. You know, because the, the phone will feed the. Yes. I mean, the watch will feed the phone, and then I can see it easier on the screen. Yeah. No, it's really interesting, isn't it, Harry? Thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge with us today, and. If people want to follow you or find out what you're doing or buy your book, what's the, what's the best place for them to do that? Uh, so the book is available on Amazon. Uh, they can and just I'll look up The Future You uh, and Glorikian or just go to my website, which is uh, www.glorikian.com. So it's G-L-O-R-I-K-I-A-N.com. Great. Well, thank you so much. And that was really interesting to learn about the application of AI. And you have allayed some of my fears, I have to say. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. That was Harry Glorickian, healthcare entrepreneur, expert in the application of AI in healthcare, and author of the book, The Future You, How Artificial Intelligence Can Help You Get Healthier, Stress Less, and Live Longer. So thank you for listening today and I hope you found my discussion with Harry as enlightening as I did. And if you enjoy Vibrant Lives podcast, please share the podcast and tell your friends about it. And if you could take a minute to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, it will help people find my podcast and I'm always so grateful for that. You can subscribe to my podcast on all good podcast providers like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast and Google Podcasts and you can also subscribe on YouTube. Also please check out my website at vibrantlivespodcast.com and there you'll find a library of all my previous podcast episodes and reviews of books that I recommend and more. So please if you want to contact me please do so via the contacts page on my website or DM me and let me know if there's a person you'd like me to interview and I will do my very best to deliver that to you. I've got some excellent and informative episodes coming up for you, including my interview with Dr. Emma Ryan, dermatologist, where we discuss teenage skin and in particular acne and how that can impact mood, plus of course what can be done about it. We also talk about mature skin. Vibrant Lives podcast is recorded on ancient Ghana land, I acknowledge the Ghana people as the traditional custodians of this land and pay respect to their elders past, present and future. Thank you very much for tuning in. Eat well, move well, think well.